Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 21. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. So today we're going to discuss Luke, 11, uh, Luke 13. Excuse me. Uh, this is a passage that is readily uh, available to us in the Lenten season. It, it gives itself to a Lenten meditation. And by that, I simply mean that Lent being a season by which we seek to examine our lives in the light of Christ and the high standard of the calling that he gives to those who would be disciples, we are seeing something in this passage that cuts us to the core, something that takes place as we're going to see in the context as we bring out a little bit of the backstory of what goes on at the beginning of this chapter, something that's utterly unthinkable to us as Christians, especially today in our modern uh, American culture, as we perceive religious activity and the favor of God. This is something that is mind-blowing to the Christian. It's absolutely unthinkable in some ways if you're uh, considering who these people were, who they claimed to be, and what was taking place, what had actually happened and uh, it's, my, it's my opinion that this is one of the preeminent passages in the book of Luke as to the calling for disciples. We're going to see that as Jesus is giving these warnings or as Jesus is giving these admonitions, that these people are caught off guard by the severity of what he's saying. These, this kind of passage is 
among the different passages in the, the Gospels, such as, if anyone would wish to come up after me, that is, if anyone would wish to follow me, he must take up his cross daily. This is unthinkable if you understand what a cross is. A cross is a method by which you die. A cross is, the cross is the means by which your life is ended. Jesus is calling you, if you seek to be a follower of him, not to a life of comfort, not to a life of ease, but rather a life of death. And we know that death, of course, is necessary for a resurrection. But before you get to the resurrection, there is a suffering which you must go through. And that suffering is a continual repentance. That's why this message is called the necessity of repentance. The Christian life is a calling to continual repentance by which we lay our lives down. We don't take them up. We lay our lives down we, and we offer them up at the feet of Jesus however he wishes for us to serve him. Often that looks like loving our neighbor, building his kingdom in various ways, but as we see at the beginning of this chapter, it isn't glorious necessarily. We're going to look at this and as, uh, as this construct of, of the necessity of repentance leads into the opposed kingdoms, that is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Uh, that's, that's where this is all going. And in fact, Jesus gives an example of the kingdom of God and then an example of the kingdom of man, and there's a sharp contrast in which this, uh, this story about the, the woman who's healed is kind of couched. It's, you can kind of think of it like a hamburger if you want to. There's a bun, and then there's this meaty center, and then another bun. There's this uh, or you can think of it like bookends, there's this major focus on a miracle that Christ does showing the hypocrisy in the religious system of his day. And, and he is doing this to demonstrate how these kingdoms are at odds. And so it is as a Christian that we must not only continually to continue to live a life of repentance, we must also be examining whose kingdom are we seeking to build? Ours, someone else's, or the kingdom of Christ and of, and of God. And so this is not just an aspect of Christian life. Repentance is not just something we do in our heart, but rather it is a mode of thought. It is a way of examining our life in the light of Jesus and what he has done and what he calls us to do for our neighbors and for God, and examining, is that in harmony? Does that sync with the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God looks like? Or are we seeking to glorify ourselves, and live for ourselves. That's what it means as a Christian to repent. It's not just to repent of the inward secret sins or the sins which we do in private, but the sins which also affect public life and public witness and public testimony. Christianity affects just as much your workplace as in the bedroom or in the family or in the car or on your finances. Christianity affects every aspect of life. That's why it's important to understand the totality of the kingdom of God. Right after this passage, although it's not in our reading today, Jesus then begins to tell them, seek to enter by the narrow gate because many are going to be called, but no, uh, not many will be able to go into that gate. And the reason why it's called the narrow gate is because the only way in is a a way of laying your life down in humble repentance, getting low enough to pass through that gate. And of course, that is a grace only given to us in Jesus Christ. And so we eagerly, even as believers, or if you consider yourself today to be an unbeliever, or you're not sure who God is, or you feel far from God, no matter where you are on the spectrum, Jesus does not give you a qualifier saying that only if you aren't really righteous do you need to repent. No, he says, unless you repent, you will indeed likewise perish. And so we're going to examine what does he mean by that? That's quite a strange saying. Is Jesus really saying we're going to die in a manner like this? And I think the answer is somewhat yes. And there's two aspects in which he is intending that this to be understood. Before we look at those two aspects, I want to give you the context because Luke does not include all of the uh, historical event that takes place in these first few verses. They come and they say to him that there's this event that happened with Pilate, who was the leader over that region of Palestine. He was the governor installed by the Roman authorities, the Caesars, and he was given charge over executing judgments against rivalist factions and political rebellions. And so what takes place in this 
uh, in this account is that uh, if you look at the stories of Josephus, some of the other historians, they give us some allusions to this, although we don't have perfect detail here. What seems to have taken place is that someone in Galatia started a political revolution by which they sought to not pay taxes to Rome and also stole from Rome. They, there's at one point later on in the, as we're going to look at in the wars of, of the Jews from Josephus, they actually instituted political rebellions. And so we understand the Romans to be occupying uh, Israel as a judgment of God, and instead of cooperating with and submitting to that judgment, the Galileans are seeking to violently overthrow that judgment, and they're absolutely horrendously slaughtered. The Galileans were uh, bringing some sacrifices to the temple, and it says that Pilate, by, by the way of his Roman army, killed them in the very same days as the feast. Now, it doesn't mean that Pilate scooped, had his soldiers scoop up the blood and pour it on the altars, but nevertheless, to kill someone during the feast was a affront to that religious system. That'd be like, for example, in our culture today, if you went and you know ex blew up a building on December 25th, uh, especially a Christian church, that would be how insulting this would be to that religious system. Or pick any other religion and that religion's high holiday, it was an intentionally done at this point to show the severity that the Romans wished to instill in the Galileans. This is the result of violent political overthrow. And the Galileans are slaughtered summarily. They're slaughtered in total, the entire group of them who were present in this rebellion, not one of them was spared, according to the account that Josephus mentions. And there's very, in, uh, very high indication that there's extreme precision and overlap in these events. All these people who participated in this rebellion were killed by the Romans, and they were killed during the time in which they were offering up the sacrifices. That's what it means when it says, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That is an absolute horrific thing to take place. And then these people are then bringing this event and saying to Jesus, Jesus, please comment on this, you know, this uh, contemporary event. Comment on what just happened. Is this righteous or not? And this is one of those examples, although it's not very clear from the text, of where the, uh, the Pharisees or Sadducees are seeking to trip up Jesus to get him either to denounce Rome or to praise Rome. Remember the time when Jesus says, uh, when they come to Jesus and ask him, is it right to pay tribute to Caesar? Jesus is, is caught in a bind here, se uh, seemingly, at first, because if he says, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees will denounce him as favoring those people who are oppressing the people of God. And if he says it's not right, then they'll bring him up on charges of sedition and of rebellion and revolution. And so he's caught in the bind, and he wisely, being aided by the Holy Spirit, takes the coin and, as you may remember, says whose image is on it, and then the, the crowd answers it's Caesar's, and he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And we all think that is the end of our political theory as Christians. <laughs> he, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And so we say, yes and amen, we'll pay our taxes. And then he says, and render unto God what is God's. Now, who does Caesar belong to? God. What, you know, who made the gold and the silver which Caesar has imprinted his image on? God. Everything belongs to God. That's what Christ is trying to say. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're operating on this level that is so less than the high calling of the kingdom of God. Give everything to God. So he answered and said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? It's important to understand not everyone in Galilee was participating in this rebellion. It was a small group of men, and they, uh, they're positing this question to see if Jesus would either praise the Romans for crushing the rebellion or side with the Galileans and therefore be able to be accused before the Roman uh, governor. And so he says, do you think that they were worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans? And the question is obviously rhetorical. It doesn't need answering. The question, the answer is in the question. Of course not. 
They're not worse than the rest of the Galileans. The sin which they committed against Rome, not paying taxes, is surely much less than the sins which are committed by men against God. And so he says, do you think that there were sinners because they suffered in this way? Jesus is intentionally challenging something. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is confronting a very common misconception in both Jewish and now modern Christian thought. That is to say that the evidences of your righteousness or your standing before God are always made plain and manifested in what happens to you. This is the core doctrine of the health and wealth gospel of the prosperity preachers, which is a heresy. That is to say, if God is really pleased with you, you'll be blessed. You'll be in good health. Let me tell you, real Christians who really love Jesus get cancer. Real Christians who really love Jesus lose their families in car accidents or are trampled down in the throes of war. God's favor over his son is evidenced in the fact that he willingly goes to the cross, dies as a political and religious uh, uh, martyr, and is shamed publicly in in the open square by hanging naked on a tree. And yet Jesus, over all men, is most favored by the Father. This is the common misconception of our day in the prosperity teaching. And unfortunately, even though some of us may not buy into the prosperity teaching, we don't listen to those teachers, it has subtly affected our lives. Think about how you relate to people with extreme disfigurement or disability. Sometimes it's hard, we must confess, sometimes we don't know how to act. We don't know how to respond to those people. Sometimes there's these subtle thoughts of, you know, does that, did that person commit some sort of sin? Or was it the sin of their parents? It reminds you of a little bit of John 9, perhaps. This is the common misconception which Jesus is confronting. He's saying they are not judged because they are worse sinners. There was a clear judgment of God at that time on the Galileans in this way, but not because their sin was greater than the rest of those who live in Galilee where Jesus did most of his teaching. He's saying, even though you're the people of God, there is a judgment on all of you. And so this is where we begin to understand how exactly Jesus is referring to this warning of impending judgment. He also confronts the other assumption of the questioner concerning their own righteousness. He says to them, do you think that because you're not, you haven't been judged that the wrath of God doesn't remain on you? That's essentially the subtext of what's going on here. Jesus warns them absolutely strictly that the wrath of God remains on all those who sin and do not turn to him in repentance. The wages of sin is death. Many people, when they think about the law of God, they, they're, especially unbelievers, their objection, although this is sometimes true of believers as well, they, their objection is, well, it says in the Old Testament that if you, know, you commit this particular sin that you're worthy of death. And they say, well, I'm I certainly wasn't that, like what I did was just a mistake. It wasn't worthy of death, right? We're offended by the fact that particular sins in the old covenant were judged by death. But what the scripture shows is that the wages of sin or the result of sin, the way that sin works its way out in life is death. Not only in destroying ourselves, but also in positioning us to receive a wrath of God on sin. And so that wrath, which is God's holy love for his creation against those things which seek to destroy it, is on sinners. And Jesus is confronting these people for their assumption of the fact that they think they're pretty okay. They're probably not worthy of this sort of death. Jesus warns them strictly, and he then reiterates it to make it even more plain. This is a prime example of repetition in the scriptures by which the writer, or in this account, the event, is seeking to convey the importance. That is, Jesus repeats himself in order to make it clear he's not kidding. He's not using hyperbole. Although this of any passage in Luke might be a chance where, based on the details of the story, there might be a little hyperbole. Jesus is saying it again to indicate, no, this is really a very serious warning that you need to heed. Verse 4, or those 18, that is 18 people, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? 
Now again, he's, he's not only saying, not only Galilee, the region of uh, southern Israel, but also those in the capital city, the center of the faith in that day. Those who lived in Jerusalem were supposed to be holy unto the Lord, just like the rest of the nation, where the temple was seated, where the, where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, had the center of their religious activity. Even the, the city with the most intense religious zeal for Yahweh, supposedly, even those people are sinners. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will always, all likewise perish. Christ is warning them, this is the first aspect of this warning, that there is an impending judgment coming on Israel. If you've been at this church for any amount of time, uh, longer than a few weeks, you've heard of this idea, though it's very uh, downplayed in, in most churches. There was a warning of God against the people of Israel for their persistent decades, centuries, and millennia-long rebellion against him in turning to idols and in religious compromise. He gives a warning to these people saying, unless you repent and escape the wrath that's coming on this generation, you will all perish in a similar manner. And he's, he's seeking to indicate this to give them a warning which the rest of the New Testament, especially the Gospels, emphasize in great detail. Yahweh, just as he did in the time when he brought Israel into the land, will once again cleanse those who are corrupting and defiling it and he will judge them at the hand of the Romans. The judgment which was prophesied did indeed come. If you've, if you've never heard this idea, I, I would encourage you just to look up the Wikipedia article on a book by Josephus, who was a historian at this time, called The Wars of the Jews. Now, that book is, is very long. It's, it's written in Greek, so you can't read the original. Um, but it's, it's a very long book, and it's, it takes a long time to get through if you want to read the full text. If you want just the digest, you know, Wikipedia. Um, so not only did the, Jewish, uh, per, uh, did the Jews per, perish in greater number than these accounts, but they also did so in greater despair. And it's, uh, again, as I said, it's, it's a multi-year campaign that the Romans execute against Israel. But I, I just want to indicate how destructive the religious systems of Israel became. Many of us have heard that Rome brought a siege against the city of Jerusalem, but if you've never read the wars of Josephus, you're missing some great and important details about the fact that the religious factions, the Sadducees and the Zealots, were at war with each other. It wasn't just the judgment of God brought by the Romans. The Jews began to fight against each other such that they filled Jerusalem with the blood of other Israelites. This is an amazing amount of judgment on the people of God. That is to say, the people who were the people of God and have continued to reject him. Those who were called to be the people of God turned away from him. And so these people not only were facing persecution by the Romans, such that the temple, as Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24, was completely toppled and destroyed and turned over, but also the very city of God, the city which God had set his seal on, that, that is the city which he had destined the law to go forth from, which it did indeed do at the time of the apostles, that same city was not only overrun by the Romans, but also fought against each other, such that children were being eaten alive, such in, in a time of famine because of the siege, that, that is, uh, the religious factions were setting fire to the food stores of the rivals. Absolute and total unthinkable warfare took place in this city, and this was because of their continued rebellion against God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is heavy. If you have ever thought about, read, read of these things, this is heavy, and Jesus is intending to warn these people that unless they repent from their sins that they will perish in like manner. And what he's doing, the major paradigm is saying that you're not better than the rest of these who've already received the judgment. And so, woe is us should we interpret this only in a historical context. I believe that many scriptures are not only to be interpreted in a, in a historical context, but also have continuing spiritual ramifications. That is to say, what Jesus' warning that he gives to these people also applies to all men, not just those who are living in Galilee or in Jerusalem. 
Can we understand what Christ is saying in a true way and think that we are exempt? Not at all. Indeed, in fact, the spiritual death which those who remain outside of Christ is even worse than those descriptions of this war. We ought not to think that we are different. All have sinned before God and all deserve death and condemnation and judgment. St. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians verses 5, 9 through 10, so whether we are at home that is in the body, just the context means in a body or have passed away, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, here's, here's the warning, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. Have you thought about that day? Ever. And then, if you have thought about it ever, do you think about it routinely? I think you should. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the Hebrew writer also warns us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. The great Christian hope is not pie in the sky, by and by, that we go to heaven after, you know, we pass away. It's that Christ will come and with him bring a glorious resurrection by which we will receive bodies that are eternal and everlasting and glorified and that we will live with him forever. But brothers and sisters, Christ came the first time to deal with sins. The second time he does not come to deal with sins, but rather to capitalize the judgment or to solidify it. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the extension would be not to save those who have no need of him. If he is going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, woe are those who do not wish to wait for him. This is the type of perishing that is much more severe than should you be in a car accident or develop cancer or, or be a, a martyr in a religious war or what have you. This is a great and indeed terrible warning and woe are we should we not pay heed to it. So, therefore, we move on to the parable. Fig trees in the Bible are often representing Israel. We're going to do a little bit of just historical context to understand the severity of Jesus' parables here. And this is important to when we get to the parable at the end or the image of the kingdom of God at the end of the chapter. So I'm going to give you just a very short history of fig trees being a representative uh, figure or typological symbol of the nation of Israel. Uh, the promised land, when Israel's coming into it, God describes that land as a land identified by fig trees. Uh, he says the land is filled with vineyards, filled with orchards, and it's a land in which there are houses and flowing milk and honey and fig trees. And so the land itself, which is often identical with the people or identified with the people, is seen with fig trees. When Israel comes into the land and begins to take and expel those nations which were in it, as they continue to take ground, uh, during the reign of Solomon, which was the most land that they ever took, was during the, the reign of Solomon, he had received it from his father David. David had ex uh, expelled uh, many of the various tribes, especially the Philistines. At this point in Solomon's reign, it says that every man in Israel, lived under his own vine and under his fig tree. This is identifying every man in Israel with the fig tree. When Nathanael in the New Testament comes to meet Jesus at the beginning of the book of John, Jesus declares that he's a true Israelite who isn't a liar. Now, what's important to see, if you remember this story, perhaps you remember Jesus says, verily or truly, I see an Israelite in whom there is no deception or who, who is no lying, it shouldn't have been the case that that was a rare occurrence, but it was. And he sees this person, Nathaniel, a true Israelite who's resting underneath a fig tree. And this seeing that Jesus does is not by the natural eyes, but by the spirit. He saw him at a distance or at a, uh, a distance of either space or time. Jesus sees Nathaniel under this fig tree, and the writer is seeking to, to convey this kind of importance. Not only is Nathaniel, one of his disciples, going to be a true Israelite, but Jesus himself is the true Israelite. After cleansing the temple in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus rebukes the fig tree, which has leaves but no fruit. Now, 
if you have ever experienced a tree, perhaps an apple tree, a peach tree, various tree in, in today's world, we understand seasons of fruit, that is leaves come out and then fruit matures. But on fig trees, it's actually the case that fruit comes out before the leaves on many fig trees and then on other types of fig trees, uh, fruit is produced late in the season, then the leaves drop, and then in the new part of the season, then the leaves come in and there's fruit remaining. Now, we're not here to get into a, a plant discussion, but the point is that Jesus is cursing the fig tree because it should have fruit on it, but it doesn't. It has the signs of fruit, it has the signs of maturity, but it has absolutely nothing to eat from it. He curses the tree and it withers immediately. Now, this is an amazing event. Uh, this is sort of the authority which Jesus is showing. This is reminiscent of Moses with the sign that God gave him when he put his hand in the cloak and then he took it out and it was withered and leprous and then he would put it back in his cloak and pull it out and it was restored and alive again. Jesus is showing that he has the authority just like Moses executed the judgments on Israel for Jesus to not only execute judgment on those who sin, but one day execute judgment at his throne, at his second coming. This is Jesus's authority. He has the ability to judge for fruitlessness. After prophesying the destruction of the temple, Jesus gives a figurative timetable or a timekeeper, a timepiece of when the judgment will come. And he says, the judgment is come, the judgment on Israel is ready when the fig tree is ready. He's again making an identification between the two. Now, if that didn't uh, convince you in a literary fashion that fig trees are often representative of Israel in the New Testament, just continue to read your Bible and eventually you may see it my way. Um, Christ continues to warn in this same chapter by giving a parable of his ministry about what he has been doing in Israel and we're going to see that that parable is actually right in the middle of these two discussions of, um, uh, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. In verse 6, he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. If you know the parable of the vineyard owners, or the vineyard owner and the vineyard renters, this will be a very familiar interpretation. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, it's my belief that the person who owns the vineyard is, is the father, and the person who is coming these three years could indicate Jesus. That is, his earthly ministry was a period of three and a half years. But clearly, the vineyard owner is God. And through his servants, time and again, the prophets of old, the judges of old, God had sought to receive fruit from the people of God. That is, not a fruit of a natural kind, but a fruit of a spiritual maturity. That is a fruit of repentance. And so God is coming and evaluating once again, there is nothing to be found on this fig tree. Therefore, he issues a command, cut it down. Because why should it use up the ground? Why should God use this tree which will not do what he asks? Why should it be in his vineyard? Verse 8, and he said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. I believe this is somewhat indicative of the time after Christ by which he put off the judgment of Israel, which was already ripe to allow the judgment to be even more secure and severe in that they killed and slaughtered the apostles and the Christians who came after them. This is what Paul, before his conversion, was doing. He was living like the rest of Jerusalem, the, the city which kills and stones the prophets and those who are sent to her. Jesus sends them out and they are. some of them are killed Stephen being the first, what we might call the proto-martyr, the first martyr. Uh, but the rest of the Christians faced a persecution exactly like that. The point is this, that God goes to absolutely great lengths in showing mercy to the unregenerate and those who resist him. No one should be able to say in their heart of hearts, if they understand this, that God is unjust in his patience. And in fact, this is the argument that Paul makes in the book of Romans, considering those who put off repentance. 
That is, God desired to show his mercy and so has tolerated for a long time vessels which are destined for destruction. The point is this, that Jesus is saying there is still a season of mercy, repent. Even so, we begin to see at this point what John the Baptist meant. When he says the axe is laid to the root of the tree, he's not simply talking about some abstract spiritual thing. He's talking about the spiritual tree, which is Israel. There is an axe laid to it. And then he goes on to say in that very same passage that every tree which does not bear fruit is plucked out. It's taken away. It's cut down. God is not going to strive with sin forever. And so at this point, after this first parable of the tree, we see, in, couched in between these two statements of trees, we see an example of the hypocrisy which God is coming to judge and the true religion which Christ exhibits, which is to, to care for those who are downtrodden. Verse 11, there's a woman who's disabled for 18 years. Imagine that. I, I have a, some trouble every once in a while. This is kind of a little gross, but just to give you an indication of how uh, how low we understand suffering. I'm kept up at night sometimes by a slightly ingrown toenail. Think about that. Think about that. A, a slightly ingrown toenail has the ability to keep me up at night. This woman cannot move. She, she can't stand up straight for 18 years, for almost two decades. She is unable to do anything about her bent over and disabled condition. She's suffering. Verse 12, Jesus saw her, he called over to her and said, woman, you are freed from your disability. And that, at that moment, she's healed. Jesus declares something by the spirit of God. He sees the father moving, he operates, and then she's healed. She is able to stand. She's able to move. She's freed from her condition. He lays his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And we immediately, at this point, have a witness of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. This is amazing to me, brothers and sisters, if this person who had been disabled, bent over, you know, think of it kind of like a 90-degree angle, bending over, completely disabling and crippling, if she had lived in this city, which we have every indication and, and uh, right to say that she did, then they would have known her for two decades as being a woman who was severely handicapped and crippled. You gotta keep in mind, this is not an age or a time where we have cars. They're not going to synagogue towns over, they're going to synagogue in their neighborhood. The ruler of the synagogue who speaks against Christ here knew that woman for two decades. And yet he speaks against Christ and, and doesn't even have the courage to direct it at him, but rather rebukes the people. And it's important to see the depth of the hypocrisy. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. He didn't say to Jesus. He said to the people. He was unwilling or, or lacked the courage to even rebuke the one who did this thing. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. It's important to see that this woman did not come to be healed that day. And in fact, the hypocrisy has so blinded this spiritual elder who's ruling in this synagogue to the point where he completely misses the point. Jesus is the one who chose to heal her. And he rebukes the people for coming to be healed on the Sabbath. And there are six other days to be healed. The point is this, that this religious ruler is so blind to the depth of his own deception that he is rebuking the Son of God and doesn't have the courage to even direct it at him, but rather couches it or veils it in this subtle rebuke against the people who desperately need the ministry of the Son of God. It's absolutely hard to fathom the coldness of heart and the blindness of heart or spirit that this man operates in. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, some of this has happened to us. Like I said earlier, sometimes it's hard when we meet people who are disabled or disfigured, and we, we don't really know how to relate to them. Perhaps you've experienced this with uh, uh, someone who's uh, absolutely destitute. Uh, you, you don't know how to relate to them, and, and you seek to kind of distance yourself from them. And so at one time, it's, we can say it's hard to fathom this kind of coldness of heart, but at the same time, it's very near and dear to our experience. I was in San Francisco uh, about five, well, maybe six years ago, 
at least six years ago. Um, seven? This was before we... Okay. I think it was six years ago. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a long time ago. <laughs> at least six years ago. A- anyway, the time's not important. I was in, I was in San Francisco, and I was, uh, I was going to a developer conference in San Francisco. Had never been there before. Wasn't really ready for what I experienced. Let me just say, if you're going to a major city, pray for a few days beforehand. Um, about two days into the trip, we were walking. I was with some of my coworkers. We were walking between a conference center and a place that was going to have a lunch reception. And I've met homeless people. I had, be, I had been to Europe twice. I've seen some homeless people who, uh, who live in destitution. Even in our city, we have homeless people, though the ratio of, of people without homes to centers is very good here compared to larger cities. And I, I saw this person who was sitting on the sidewalk, um, and they were at the intersection of a street with a sign, and they smelled like uh, multiple bottles of vodka had been poured on them. That was how, like five to six feet away from the man, in an open breezy day, I could smell this. And as we got closer, it was clear that he was living in his own excrement, and absolutely just the most pitiful thing I'd ever seen. And at, at one moment, my heart went out to him and said, I need to do something. And then as I kept walking, it just was clear, even if I did stop, there's no, I, I don't live here. I can't, I can't really do anything about this. And I found within myself this absolute revulsion. And perhaps you've experienced this too, where you, you really just want to keep on walking. This is not foreign to our experience. Lest you say in your heart, I would not be like this religious leader. I would not be callous towards my fellow man. It, it happens. We, we are guilty of this sin. We are guilty of apathy and coldness of heart and wanting to have our religious things tidy instead of justice being done to those who need it. Those, those are sins that Christians commit. And so at one level, it's hard to fathom this coldness of heart. And at another level, we see in this sin our need for repentance, our need for redemption. Even so, even even knowing that is the case, this man puts the law of God and his interpretation of the law of God above its intent and perverts it from its original intent. The point is that Jesus Christ sees the need, meets the need, and in so, do, in so doing, displays his glory, displays the kind-heartedness of the Father. Verse 15, the Lord rebukes him. See, we, we have trouble with the Lord rebuking us. We like it when the Lord rebukes others. The Lord rebukes this person, as he should have. You hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water. Now think about this. They are saying that this woman can't be healed because it violates the Sabbath. But they themselves allow within their interpretation of the law to take animals to water. Jesus' case is how much more than a human being who's made and, and bears the image of God. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? That's the point of the Sabbath is rest from those things which hinder or hurt us. And so they're, they're showing that they hate God's Sabbath. They want their Sabbath, not God's Sabbath. After this, Christ gives another parable by which we see the glory of his kingdom. He says, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? Verse 19, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. See, there's this tree, the fig tree, which does not bear fruit, and it lives in his vineyard, and he says, cut it down. And then he talks about his kingdom, and he says, it's like a person took a mustard seed and put it in a garden, and it began to grow up such that it was raised, and the birds came and nested in it. This, in my opinion, is a direct reference and foil of or an undoing of or a retelling so as to demonstrate the futility of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, the second dream that he has in the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 4. If you've never read the book of Daniel, I would recommend it strongly. You cannot understand the Gospels 
certainly without the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but also a number of the prophets. Isaiah is one of them, but Daniel is so important. If you don't understand Daniel, if you don't see what Jesus is referring to, you miss the intention of this chapter, which is to show that God is opposed to religious kingdoms which are built against him and political kingdoms which are built against him. This reiterates or comes back to the original tension of the questions asked of him at the beginning of the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar in this dream, if you don't know the story, I'll recap it very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar in this dream sees himself as a tree. Now, at first, he doesn't know it's himself, but Daniel provides this interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says that after this dream, he was greatly afraid. He internally or subconsciously knew that this was a judging dream. The tree grows up. The tree reaches to the heavens. It fills the earth. It reaches up into the heavens, and the birds of the tree come and nest in its branches. The beasts come and rest in its shade. And at this point, a holy one, David, David says, at this point, a holy one comes down from heaven and says, verse 14, this holy one proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree and strip off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. If you ever have the chance to go on YouTube, if you've got a few minutes and you want to listen to a great song, there's a worship leader by the name of Jason Upton. And he has a song that is, it's, it's very artsy, just to give you a warning, but I love this song. He, he actually is singing this event. He sings, and it's got this great chorus, which kind of erupts, and there's these, like, flutes and cymbals. It's amazing. And the chorus explodes with, chop down the tree. The point being that this holy one, the one who comes down from heaven, according to Daniel, is saying of this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who exalted himself as a man-god, that he should be cut down. This is exactly Christ's intention when he gives this indication of a seed which, first of all, starts small and then grows so that, like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the birds come and rest in its branches. What Jesus is intending to help us understand is that he hates both types of systems, whether they be religiously oriented against his lordship or politically oriented against his lordship. And indeed, what he's saying is they're not so different. They're both worthy of being chopped down. He's going to chop down the tree of Israel, any system of idolatry and religious compromise, but he also will chop down the tree of Babylon, the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over. We know that this is the proper interpretation because Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, this is what the interpretation is. You will be humbled for a period of years. We know that Nebuchadnezzar then goes literally insane and lives like an animal in the field, eating the grass, living like a wild person. This is what Christ is doing by showing the, the, the kingdom of God in this parable. He's showing that it's directly opposed to those kingdoms. Both systems hate the lordship of Christ and are diametrically opposed to his rule. Now, lest you, again, think, well, that's a problem back then, and, you know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't apply to me. I'm not voting for Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> the point is that there can be no middle ground between those two kingdoms and Christ's kingdom. And lest you believe that you are invested in those kingdoms, uh, or lest you believe you're not, I would submit that you have been and are at times tempted to. In the place of the kingdoms of men, Christ plants the kingdom of God after cutting them down, which has been steadily growing and is continuing to fill the whole earth. Many of you think that the, the kingdom of God is going to suffer loss and it's going to, to have a great downfall and there's going to be a great falling away. Brothers and sisters, the, the New Testament is clear continual victory, Jesus Christ will have the reward of his sufferings. He will be glorified among men. So the question that I would posit to you today is which kingdom are you seeking? Are you seeking your own kingdom? Are you seeking to glorify yourself? Are you seeking to multiply money or family relations or friendship or vocational success, careers, cars? Are you seeking to glorify your life and in so doing, making yourself a mini Nebuchadnezzar who would be existing for his own sake? 
or rather, are you seeking the kingdom of God? Nebuchadnezzar, just to understand the point, is he, he would go around through his kingdom and he would look at the glory of his kingdom and he would say to himself, my might, my power, I've done this. This is what we do when we pervert the gifts that God gives us, good as they are, for our own glory instead of using them in the service and love of God and love of neighbor, completing the law from the heart, being aided by his spirit. Are you seeking to use these for yourself? Or, as Christ tells us, are you seeking the kingdom of God first? In all your ways, like we mentioned, both family relationships and business, the way you handle your money, the way you treat strangers, the way you treat the poor, the way that you care for those people who are both in the church and outside of the church, are you seeking to bring the kingdom of God? That's what it means to repent at a fundamental level. It's not just ending sins that you know are sins. It's also examining, is my whole life submitted to Jesus Christ? I hope, it's my eager desire that you would begin to say, is my vocation submitted to Christ? Is my money submitted to Christ? Am I using my degree in the proper way for the glory of God? Am I seeking to build his kingdom? Or am I primarily concerned with my own comfort and peace? Brothers and sisters, if you seek to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you absolutely have to take up your cross and deny yourself. If you wish to, to gain your life, you have to lose it. You have to give it away. And that is why we understand this passage in the context of Lent to be a, a message of the necessity of repentance. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would remove from us callousness of heart. Lord, we confess that we are often like this elder at the synagogue who are more concerned with religious niceness and every box being checked and all the I's dotted and T's crossed. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for my apathy towards the lost and my lack of love for my fellow brothers and sisters. But at the same time, Lord, we know that you're able to save to the uttermost. We know that this is not hard for you, but that you are able to do it. We know that it is impossible with man, and yet it is possible for you. Lord, I pray that you would begin to open our eyes to see the crown rights of Jesus Christ, that we would begin to see his glory, his kingdom, and our allegiance to it as being primary in life. That it wouldn't just be for us, Lord, a religion or a faith which touches on things of personal piety, but, but expands beyond that to include everything in life. That you are a real savior, that you are a real king. Lord, we ask you that you would do these things by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would not get the glory, but that you would. That you would be seen as powerful and mighty to save. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.